from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, a guilty verdict in the police execution of Dante Wright. Also, Greg Palace joins us for another edition of the Election Crimes Bulletin. And also, what can Biden do without the Congress to hold corporations accountable? All this coming up straight out on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We come to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network here. It's KPFA in the Bay, and we are happy to have you along. Uh, And there was a bit of justice, I guess you could say, in the case of the police killing of Dante Wright, a killing of Dante Wright by a 26-year veteran who was, once again, a cop on a training mission. Can you imagine what kind of training? was going on. In any event, there was uh, an event after the uh, guilty verdict. The Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, had a press conference with the family of Dante Wright. And let me just point out, I remember when he was first killed, um, Dante Wright's mom said, "There there is no such thing as the word for justice. It doesn't even exist for my son. Well, maybe this is a bit of justice. Here's the Attorney General. Hello, everybody. My name is Keith Ellison. I'm the Attorney General for the state of Minnesota. At this moment, I ask us all to reflect upon the life of Dante Wright and who he could have been had he had a chance to grow up. At 20, Dante could have done anything. Maybe he could have gone into the building trades. Maybe he could have started a business. What we know is that he was a young, new dad, and he was so proud of his son, Dante Jr. We know that he loved his mom, and he loved his dad, and he loved his siblings, and his big, beautiful family. He had his whole life in front of him, and he could have become anyone. All of us miss out on who Dante could have been. And no one has missed him more than his parents, Katie and Aubrey, and their children. I'm very mindful today that there will be an empty chair at the Wright family dinner during the holidays. And that saddens me. And once again, I extend my deepest condolences to you. With the jury finding Kimberly Potter guilty uh, today of manslaughter in the first degree and manslaughter in the second degree in connection with Dante's death, we have a degree of accountability for Dante's death. Accountability is not justice. Justice is restoration. Justice would be restoring Dante to life and making the right family whole again. Justice is beyond the reach that we have in this life for Dante. But accountability is an important step, a critical, necessary step on the road to justice for us all. I want to thank the jury for their careful attention and deliberation and for their service to the people of Minnesota. I want to thank all of the witnesses who testified and who came forward with what they knew about this case. I especially want to thank my remarkable team 
When I took this case, I said it would be difficult to prosecute because history has shown that trying cases like this one is difficult. This team did not shy away from the challenge, and the people of Hennepin County and the, pe and the American people and the people of Minnesota, what they saw in the courtroom was the fruit of many, many hours of labor and hard work and planning. For my office, I want to thank specifically Mr. Matthew Frank. Matthew. I want to thank Aaron Eldridge. I want to thank Eric Miller and David Voigt and Dion Dodd. But this team wouldn't be much of anything if it were not for the amazing work of Joshua Larson, Raul Shaw, and Vernona Boswell. Thank you, Vernona. I also must thank colleagues who did not work on the legal matter, but worked on the community. And that is John Stiles, Keon Dosti, and everyone. So thank you to you all for your hard work. I also want to thank the many staff at the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension who worked on this case. The staff of the Hennepin County Attorney's Office and Washington County Attorney's Office. Specifically, I want to thank Mr. Drew Evans and those who testified in this case, like Agent Phil, who did a fine job and who put in many long hours. We appreciate their service. The next step in this case is sentencing. And all I will say about that today is that we have to look forward to the court setting a calendar date for that hearing. And at that time, we will make our appropriate arguments within the context of the court hearing. I think we have a date, do we not? What is that one? Anybody remember the date? March 8th. My thoughts are also uh, with Ms. Potter today. She has gone from being an esteemed member of the community and honored member of a noble profession to being convicted of a serious crime. I don't wish that on anyone, but it would be our, but it was our responsibility as the prosecution, as ministers of justice, to pursue justice wherever it led and the jury found the facts. My thoughts are also with those who work in law enforcement and public safety. We hold you in high regard and we also hold you to high standards. We don't want you to be discouraged. Your community respects and appreciates you. We want you to uphold the highest ideals of our society and ideals of safety. And when a member of your profession is held accountable... And uh, uh, that's uh, the Attorney General uh, of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, going on a little bit about uh, sort of playing both ends to the middle there. Uh, but again, uh, if you haven't heard, uh, there was a, a double conviction in the killing of Dante Wright, 20 years old, uh, life ended. Cop claimed, uh, the 26-year veteran and training officer claimed that she pulled the wrong gun. This is a very important case to win because if, if in fact, the people lost and she got off, this would be the, the perfect uh, modus operandi for any cop who wanted to kill somebody. Oh, my God, wrong gun. The difference between these two guns, the weight, the look, the feel, the use, it was a big lie. And there was a little bit of justice. Like I said in the beginning, though, uh, Dante's mom 
didn't even think uh, justice could be a word for her, but the, the family got a little bit of justice, uh, and we're glad to see that. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, my name is Dennis Bernstein, and we continue now. Uh, and we're going to turn our attention to, you know, obviously there's the big battle. Is Biden going to be able to undermine some of the key aspects of the uh, Build Back Better legislation, some of the real, the aspects that could really help poor people and young people and working people? Uh, and um, we have been watching that very closely, but uh, there are uh, many ways to go about holding corporations accountable and that's what we're going to talk about joining us is max moran uh max is uh works closely with the revolving door project he's the research uh, director there uh and uh max welcome to flashpoints it's good to have you with us thanks for having me well um why don't you talk a little bit about uh, obviously, uh, we're all concerned. You've got uh, uh, Manchin, who is uh, definitely in the, the pockets of the corporations, in the pockets of big business. He has Familia, who's also getting all that kind of money. It's been obnoxious to watch him lecturing uh, people in canoes from his, uh, from his uh, yacht, uh, which he drives to in a Maserati. Um, so that's sort of the obvious uh, disdain that, you know, that, that creates disdain by people who are really questioning the system. But tell us a little bit about are, are there other ways that the president of the United States can hold these corporations and these corporate killers uh, accountable? Uh, very much so. You could argue that uh, um, an ex- one of the main jobs of the president of the United States actually is. Uh, to be a counterbalance and to be uh, a force fighting against uh, exploitative private uh, forces in, in our society so that we really haven't had a president who was interested in that portion of the job, that is the actual management of the executive branch, the actual use of things like the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, the EPA, and so on uh, as fully as possible. We haven't had a president who was interested in really doing those parts of the job, um, I would argue, in 40, 50 years at the very least. Um, but there absolutely are very real powers which uh, President Biden can be mobilizing in order to uh, hold corporate actors accountable and also just in order to improve the lives of everyday people, which he hasn't yet. And these are things which uh, at Robin Door Project, we are very, uh, we care a great deal about uh, emphasizing those uh, actions which fall directly within executive authority because there, it's truly just a matter of the president's own political will. Uh, you don't have to get 50 votes in a Senate in order to, uh, you know, most notably cancel almost all student loan debt. Uh, almost all student loan debt is owed to the federal government. So with a pen stroke, uh, same as any debtor, uh, President Biden and the, uh, and the education secretary can effectively uh, say we forgive these loans. Uh, this is an action which he has not yet taken. He's using the same. He's used the same authority to defer. Uh, um, payments on interest uh, for student loans throughout the pandemic. He just did the same thing uh, a few days ago. Through that same authority, he can forgive outright. Um, And there are also extremely powerful criminal statutes which can be used uh, um, uh, laid against uh, oil firms, laid against wage theft firms, laid against uh, big tech companies, and so on. 
uh, which the Department of Justice has not mobilized and has not been using. So we've been doing a great deal of research on uh, the powers that the president uh, can use and has not uh, used yet and are trying to make the case for why uh, his own political survival, not to mention, like, you know, the uh, decency and the hope for the planets really uh, rely on him uh, making a very severe 180 as quickly as possible. And clearly, I mean, as you point out, he has the power. Uh, does he have the will or is he supported maybe to a bit of a lesser degree by the same kinds of corporations that own Congress now? Now, I, I know one of the big things, if he really wanted to get into it, is he could get into uh, offshore corporate profits. Of course, his home state of Delaware is sort of like a mini uh, um, Swiss Switzerland with uh, special kinds of banking arrangements to attract all kinds of uh, hidden operations. But tell us about um, what, what could be done. How could uh, we haul in a bunch of cash by holding corporations accountable for their offshore operations? Well, it's an interesting thing. There's, uh, there's a portion of the tax code uh, which essentially lays out uh, the difference between um, things that are considered uh, pure tax, uh, like, like literally just refusing to pay taxes which you are legally owned, uh, and, and taxes which essentially through a lot of legal machinations it is technically legal for one to dodge, uh, but which uh, our tax code has not interpreted that as a form of, of criminality. Um, uh, effectively, it's just a matter of legal interpretation that there is a distinction between these things. Um, the, uh, it's perfectly within uh, Biden's power, within the power of the IRS and within the power of the Department of Justice uh, to basically say all of, like, you know, the legal machinations, all of the tools which uh, the um, which, for instance, Amazon uses in order to technically pay zero dollars in tax and have that be technically legal. Uh it's entirely within the president's power to say, you know what, no, we're, that's not how we're interpreting this part of the tax code anymore. You don't have to change a word of statute. You don't have to uh, eliminate a single uh, – or rather, you don't have to, like, go through Congress on any part of that. You can just say, uh, you know, Merrick Garland and the IRS and so on can just determine that the tools which, uh, which corporations have used in order to legally dodge taxes, we are now considering that to be a, a, to be a crime. We are now considering that to be a form of criminality. Um, this is not a very widely known aspect of the tax code. Uh, you can imagine why. There are a lot of, there is a great deal of money put into uh, trying to prevent information like that from both being widely discussed as well as being considered like, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, something within sort of the mainstream of like, you know, of legal thinking, but there's absolutely no reason it can't be the case. What what are we talking about in terms of money and uh, money recaptured when we think about uh, offshore? How much money uh, is disappearing uh, in these uh, secret bank accounts? What uh, what's being lost? Could it really make a difference? Uh, well, on, on the question of making a difference, I mean, I think that that depends on how you define things. Um, it's easily in the in the many hundreds of billions of dollars as far as 
uh, wealth, which uh, especially corporations as well as the as well as extremely wealthy individuals uh, hide offshore, shield from taxation, and so on. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know. It, it, with any kind of a tax question, especially, it depends on in part on what on what your goal is. Uh, you know, you would say that, like economists would say, that there's sort of two reasons to tax. One is in order to raise revenue, uh, and the other is in order to effectively punish economic activity, which we don't want. Uh, I think that uh, you know, um, extremely wealthy people being able to accumulate ever more wealth, largely just by like sitting on their butts. Um, through passive investment, um, while we have a world of, you know, a great deal of pain, a great deal of poverty, uh, I think that that would fall into the latter category. Like, like you know, you can you can certainly make the argument for the former. I, I would happily do so. But uh, you know, I think that the real reason you would want to, um, you know, change ta- change elements of the tax code, change elements of tax enforcement, uh, and uh, especially eliminate offshore accounts. Um, would be because this is activity that we think is wrong, that we think is, is immoral. And so, uh, you know, we want to, uh, you know, build a society, build a system uh, in which that kind of thing doesn't happen or is at the very least, like, very heavily punished. Uh, again, um, it's purely a matter of – much of this is purely a matter of interpretation of the tax code. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily require – uh, like actual legal changes to the tax code. You can just have the Department of Justice and the IRS shift their interpretations of aspects of this. So in that respect, that's just a matter of political will. That's just a matter of the people in charge uh, determining what kind of society they think that we should live in. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Max Moran. Moran is a research director with the uh, group Revolving Door Project. Now, your group just did a a survey and published an article, polling finds enormous bipartisan support for crackdown on corporate law-breaking. And th- these are some pretty impressive statistics uh, with Republicans and Democrats, independents. There's a lot of people who are willing to uh, hold these corporations, who want these corporations uh, to be held accountable. So what's the problem? Uh, well, I mean, I think that you sort of like touched on this and at the start of the segment, the, the problem is that like, uh, you know, much of our government is bought and paid for, uh, I'd say it's the biggest problem. Um, you know, our polling finds that, uh, 70% of registered Democrats, 70% of independents and 70% of registered Republicans, uh, would all very strongly support a president. Uh, heavily prioritizing uh, like a crackdown on corporate law breaking, on law breaking by massive corporations, uh, and um, aggressive and uh, just um, by the same token, uh, massive numbers of uh, people of all different partisan persuasions um, would support uh, increased funding for aspects of the federal government that crack down on such law breaking. Um, would support uh, a president who makes this a center point of a re-election strategy and so on. Uh, essentially, the numbers are in, and the numbers very clearly indicate that people are deeply fed up with the state of our economy, with the, the state of inequality and with the state of a handful of giant firms and the extremely wealthy people who run them, uh, you know, running roughshod over all of the rest of us. Uh, why this hasn't been a priority for most presidents, I mean, again, as you sort of uh, indicated, is that, for one thing, a lot of them rely on those same firms uh, for 
uh, funding when they are running uh, for re-election. But also, um, especially a thing which we focus on our revolving door, is that uh, a, a lot of presidents of both parties, well, like presidents of both parties for at least 40, 50 years, uh, rely on those same firms to staff up their own executive branches, to staff up their own advisors, their own cabinet secretaries, the people who they put in charge. Uh, most notably right now, you have Jeffrey Zions, who was uh, essentially an investment guy and a management consultant, like a McKinsey type of fellow, uh, who's now in, in charge of the COVID-19 uh, response. And uh, as we're all living through the Omicron variant and as we're uh, living through these massive testing lines and so on, uh, dudes came out of the uh, Vanity Fair that uh, the administration was briefed on a plan by scientists to uh, basically saying, look, you've got a massively increased number of at-home tests available ahead of the holidays, and this plan was completely ignored. Um, you know, the, if you surround yourself with people who aren't willing to upset the balance of power within business, who aren't willing to uh, do things like invoking the Defense Production Act in order to refocus domestic manufacturing or, or around things that we need, things like, you know, COVID-19 tests instead of just whatever firms happen to think is profitable at the moment. If you have, if you surround yourself with people who think that that's completely verboten, then you're not even going to consider that as a possibility that's on the table when it absolutely is. Uh, you need people who are going to expand the boundaries of just what you think is even possible, what you think is even a policy that a strategy that could be pursued that's on the table uh, before you can actually govern in that way. Well, before we let you go, if if listeners wanted to be active um, uh, and wanted to get involved, what what's the sort of one two of what you would recommend? Like, hey, Joe, uh, we know uh, that you've been in a little discussion uh, and we have been mentioned, but you know you can do this as well. Why don't you just act for the people? Well, what do you suggest people do, say, write? Uh, what are the vulnerable, most vulnerable? points to hold the president accountable it's a great question um so first of all i would say of course you got to educate yourself uh the best way to do that is to read uh the american prospect a fantastic uh magazine uh put out a series a year ago called the day one agenda uh which was their list of things that president biden could do on day one uh some of which he's done the vast majority of which he has not um, go read that. It's a fantastic resource. Uh, I would also, of course, recommend us at therevolvingdoorproject.org. That's therevolvingdoorproject.org. We also do a lot of things along these lines. Um, and the second point as far as uh, where to actually begin applying pressure, uh, you know, there's a million great uh, advocacy organizations, a million great things, but one of the best things is to get involved with your local union. Uh, if you, um, uh, if you work for a union shop, if you don't consider organizing, uh, your workplace, this is a president, uh, one of, like, you know, both because it's good to work for, uh, it's good to have a union, but also this is a president who cares a great deal about being perceived as uh, good for working people as being perceived as pro-union. Uh, he listens when unions tell him things. Um, that is a fantastic way in and a fantastic way to start shifting this conversation. Well, say, just before we let you go, uh, I'm a member of uh, union, CWA. Are they engaged? How can unions, how have unions, have they started to engage at this level? 
They certainly have. CWA has been excellent on a number of these different fronts. Um, uh, we work with, uh, with folks over there on some issues at some times. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a president, like, you know, this president and, uh, the Democratic Party in general are waking up to, they haven't fully woken up to the entire thing, but they do recognize that they need the support of organized labor and they need organized labor as an organizing mechanism, uh, if they want to stand any kind of a chance, uh, as a political entity. Um, and so that is uh, the best way to uh, both begin organizing people around you and your community around these kinds of lines, uh, but also to do so in a way that is going to get the administration's attention. Beautiful. Thank you, Max Moran. We appreciate the, the good work you do at the Revolving Door Project, where you are the research director. Please come back and keep us informed uh, and give us an update on how this battle is going to hold uh, the president accountable, even if uh, Manchin uh, is going to rule <laughs> the political world. We're going to leave it right there. Please stay safe. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. When we come back, we're going to go back to uh, the nature of police killing and one more example of out of control cops killing kids stay with us And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are back and we turn attention to a local story of uh, police violence. Joining us is Robert Collins. Uh, he is the father of Angelo Quinto. Uh, and we're going to focus on how that young man died and why he shouldn't have uh, been killed. Uh, it is another troubling example of uh, police overreaction uh, that leads to an unnecessary death. So, uh, Robert Collins, welcome to Flashpoints. We are always, uh, and of course, very sad uh, for your loss. Uh, thank you for joining us. And also joining us is our own free will and Frank Sterling, who makes a practice of uh, working with uh, parents and victims of police violence. Um, Robert Collins, let me start with you. Um, tell us just a little bit about uh, Angelo and, and what he was like uh, before the police decided to end his life. Yes, thank you, Dennis. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for the for inviting us, uh, particularly on this day. It's the one-year anniversary of uh, really the incident that led to Angelo's death. Um, and so um, uh, it's a very difficult time for the family, uh, but really want to thank you for the attention to this issue. Um, you know, we've been trying to make any changes that we can to make it a better system. Um, so Angelo was a 30-year-old veteran, uh, Navy veteran, who uh, was suffering from a mental health crisis. He was very paranoid. He, he had had a, a head injury uh, a year earlier, and uh, he was paranoid that night, and his sister uh, called police because she was uh, a little bit scared of how uh, how paranoid he was, and he was trying to hug them and telling them not to leave him alone. Um, and uh, so police were called uh, here in Antioch, California. And by the time the police arrived, though, his mother had Angelo in a bear hug on the floor and and was consoling him. That hug was what he needed. He had calmed down. 
uh, the police came into the house and were very calm. There was no, there were no weapons, there was no drugs, there was really no violence to speak of. And, and they came in and, and, you know, very quietly he asked them not to kill him twice. And they said, we're not going to kill you. And they placed him on the uh, floor of his mother's bedroom and handcuffed him. And one officer put his weight on the back of his knees that were folded against his body. And the other officer put his weight on the upper uh, back and his neck. And they continue in this position. Um, There's a recording for at least four and a half minutes, but the actual incident was much longer. He became unresponsive, and they would basically um, talk to him as if he was, hey, Angelo, you okay? He wouldn't answer, and they would just keep on talking to the mother who was witnessing the entire incident. Um, And just basically went through the motions of saying something to Angelo, but never waiting for a response. Um, Angelo became unconscious and was unresponsive for at least four and a half minutes. Um, eventually the paramedics came and they turned him over and, and I think began to realize um, what they had done uh, because they, they did not even rush to give him CPR. Uh, the, the, the officers, they waited for the paramedics a, a few more uh, seconds or half a minute or a minute. Um, and really, frankly, um, I think that there were two crimes committed that night. One was killing, uh, killing my son, Angelo, uh, who was doing nothing uh, wrong. And the second thing was a cover-up that began that night. They began to ask questions. Um, they began to look for other explanations other than what was clearly happening. Um, and it's been something that's uh, been ongoing, right? The cover up to try to, uh, you know, to try to minimize their liability. And, uh, you know, we think this is one of the problems is that when you're covering up for what you've done, you can't learn how to do policing better if you can't admit that you've made a mistake or you've done something wrong. Um, and so that's been our struggle for this past year. Um, but we are here to celebrate Angelo, who was a very creative human being. He was a didactic human being with lots of different interests. He loved, you know, scuba diving, art, um, games and video game design. Um, he loved kids and he rescued animals. Um, he was a very dynamic human being, full of life. Um, uh, but unfortunately, that was snuffed away in, in, a, in a moment when the family was looking for help in de-escalating a situation, calmness, someone to talk to him, and instead, he was asphyxiated. Um, so to add to the injury, of course, the cover-up continues. They, the, the, the coroner's office has ruled that the death was accidental uh, due to excited delirium, which is basically bunk science. Um, and the family uh, has an independent pathologist that shows that uh, he was actually asphyxiated uh, due to positional asphyxia. So. One of the things we're celebrating this year is the passage of AB 490. So we finally have a statewide law that becomes effective on January 1st in California that prevents positional asphyxia. And we're one of only two states in the United States of America to have that. I'll remind you that even the George Floyd Act, uh, this, this, uh, the National uh, Act, does not prevent positional asphyxia. Um, so then that's where we are at today. Today we're celebrating his life. We're celebrating the accomplishments. And we're also going to be uh, announcing... Um, new legislative initiatives that will begin in 2022 to continue to reimagine policing and hopefully bring, bring some much needed reforms to a system that is very broken. Frank, uh, why don't you join us? Tell us a little bit about this particular police department for people listening around the country and how how it sort of fits into community and what the real needs of the community are. The anti police department yeah, had a, a reputation. Oh, oh sorry, Frank. I, yours. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we can both go, but yeah. Go on, as, um, 
Robert was saying, there is a reputation here um, in the Antioch Police Department that's been kind of quiet and kept under wraps. Um, there's been a history of um, smotherings and suffocations. Uh, Wendell Celestine in 2016 was put in a chokehold. Um, the death was ruled a homicide, uh, but it was ruled accidental, and of course, nothing was done. In 2015, a man named Rakim Rux, um, who was also suffering a mental health crisis, actually called the police on himself, and he too was um, held down by four or five officers in the dirt. Um, outside the apartment building and was um, basically crushed to death. And his last word of neighbor heard him say was that I can't believe. So there's been a lot that's been going on out here. And as the normal process, um, nothing has been done. So we were really um, proud and um, honored that the Cinto uh, family here, all of the work that we've done um, around Antioch and statewide, as you heard him say, with the um, Angelo Quinto Act. In Antioch, they're going to be enacting a uh, mental health crisis response team um, that will be going out instead of police calls. So that's one um, great thing that they've done. And actually, um, our police chief, if you haven't heard, has now um, quit his job here and moved to Idaho, a city in Idaho. Um, we're still getting to the bottom that um of course for him he said it was um brighter pastors um but we think he's uh running away from stuff and there's still a lot going on to find out um, why he left so yeah um, let me okay that those have uh, stepped up and um did what they've done to help the city and the state robin let me bring you back in now there yes please no thank you dennis yeah i was gonna add thank you frank yes so Antioch had a, a history, and when this happened with Angelo, I remember I was so naive that I was asking for the police body cam video because I assumed that anybody in this modern day would have it. Antioch didn't have body cams. We've, so we were fortunate. This is the most unfortunate thing that can happen to a family, the loss of a son, particularly when there was no good reason for it. But we have been fortunate in the sense that, you know, that the horrible tragedy of George Floyd had happened and that... Um, and that a pro-police reform majority city council had just won the election in November. And so we have a mayor and Mayor Lamar Thorpe and uh, 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 Tamisha Torres Walker and, uh, and uh, Assembly Member, uh, sorry, uh, uh, City Council Member Wilson, who have been passing these reforms since we've been able to get body cams passed with them. We've been able to get uh, the mental health response teams, uh, non-police mental health response teams passed, and we've been able to get a ban on positional asphyxia, um, as well as some other reforms. And then, as you've heard from Frank, there's been some personnel changes. Um, so we have been uh, pleased that at least it seems to be moving in the right direction and working with other allies. We're trying to make sure that what happened to Angelo doesn't happen to more families after. Um, and I must say, like Frank is saying, it's happened to many before. And I'm afraid that in the Bay Area, it's happened to others since. Um, so we've been... It, um, it, it, it is really... It is really a system-wide problem. It is oh so often where the police are called for some help and a nervous uh, breakdown or uh, emotional problem turns into an execution. Uh, and this is really when you talk about transforming the police department and 
changing the nature of funding. It's about creating a structure in which there's a group of people who are meant to come and help the community uh, not execute someone's child because they're having a bit of uh, uh, some uh, a mental struggle. Right, absolutely, Dennis. And, uh, you know, what we have found is that it is a system-wide uh, problem and that I think that Angelo would have been safer if he had a weapon than if he was simply asking for help. It's really a strange system that it doesn't understand how to deal with people on a very humane basis, and we have to have system-wide reform. Um, we have been very thankful to Assemblymember Gibson for passing, for helping us pass, and passing and altering AB 490 to, to ban positional asphyxia. Um, you know, we were working with uh, uh, now Attorney General Rob Bonta before, uh, trying to uh, work on some reforms with him, so we've been very um, encouraged by the changes that have been made so far, but we've got a long ways to go um, and look forward to a, you know, continued effort to try to get this thing turned around. One law to prevent positional asphyxia or even many other laws that have been good and have been um, important this year, um, you know, get us kind of that to the beginning of where we thought we should have been. We need to advance um, this a lot more and, and have maybe body cam statewide and, um, and have... Um, other structural changes that just need to happen. Another example of that has been how the sheriff has the corner under the sheriff's office. And so you don't have an independent corner. You've got somebody, a sheriff that can dictate um, what the corner should be deciding. So we have many structural problems in the system. And we go on forever about what we've learned about how biased the system is against um, its victims. When the system makes a mistake and the victim is a, is, is a is a human being, that human being has very few rights because the system is to weighted against them. Um, and so, um, you know, we'll, we'll try to do our part, but we have been really honored by the community that, that we have been working with. And again, I think that we, we got a little bit lucky. We've faced so many families who've been ignored, who've been mistreated, and who've been terrified of coming forward. Um, we were just a little lucky because at least the, the winds of change were on... Um, you know, already in that blowing in that direction. And then we were really uh, fortunate to find a number of legislators that really cared and were willing to sort of um, put, put, you know, put pressure and put their political careers a little bit on the line to try to make some changes here. So I guess yes. that's the, the good news of this horrible loss. L L and let me jump in here because we're out of time. But uh, Robert, one, there is uh, an action taking place tonight. It's about uh, to begin. What's going on? So we're having a vigil and a remembrance for Angelo because on the one-year anniversary of the incident in his mother's uh, bedroom here. So I, uh, we're having this uh, here in Antioch on the patio, and it's mostly a virtual event. And so we are uh, doing three things. We are celebrating Angelo's life, celebrating the changes that we have been able to uh, collaborate with others to make this year in honoring Angelo and the best way we know how to achieve justice. And then we're also announcing uh, with... Uh, uh, Assembly Attorney General Rob Bonta is going to be on. Uh, uh, Assembly Member Mike Gibson is going to be here in person announcing some new legislation. We're going to be uh, uh, joined by the Mayor, uh, uh, Antioch Mayor, and, uh, and Council Member Tamisha Torres Walker, and a number of other families, including the families of Oscar Grant and um, uh, Miles Hall, and many other families, uh, to try to bring together the community and start uh, establishing uh, sort of the, the agenda for next year and start thinking about, about the legislative session that's about to start. So um, everyone can right. join by going to the Facebook page. It's a live, um, it's a YouTube live uh, event. 
All right. Uh, okay, yes, well, thank uh, you. Dennis, we'll go on, Frank, very quickly. Yes. Yes, there's a link on the Justice for Angelo Quinto page, also Instagram or Twitter, also Angelo Quinto, Justice for Angelo Quinto, and it's Q-U-I-N-T-O. Beautiful. Thanks both for joining us on Flashpoints. Thank you, and, uh, Dennis, so much. Uh, Robbie, come back and uh, keep us posted, okay? We appreciate the good work and the Thank courage you, it takes we, to move we forward. And we appreciate right, the platform safe. that you always provide us. Thank you. All right, stay safe. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a musical break, about 90 seconds, and then we're going to be back with Greg Palace talking about, uh, once again, the battle to protect the vote. And it's looking more and more ugly every day. Stay with us. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Burns. Seeing this show broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We are talking to you from San Francisco tonight, and we are delighted to welcome back to these airwaves a good friend and contributor to Flashpoints, Greg Palast. Greg Palast. Dot com, the best democracy money can buy, best-selling author, uh, contributor to the BBC and many news organizations in this country and around the world. Uh, we are always, always appreciative and delighted to have Greg with us. So, Greg, welcome back to Flashpoints. Glad to be with you again. Again. And uh, again, well, uh, and we're going to need it again and again because the battle for the vote continues. Let's uh, you've got a piece up uh, on the website at gregpalace.com that deals with sort of the history of Georgia. And believe me, people who grew up in San Francisco or in New York City really do not understand uh, the nature of 
Southern justice and the nature of the racism, the level and depth of the racism and the history of the racism and the battle against giving brown and black people the right to vote. It's, it, it, it is oftentimes incomprehensible. I didn't learn about it until I spent uh, about a year investigating church burnings throughout the South. And then I understood uh, there's uh, a different kind of justice. Uh, but tell us a little bit about Georgia, because uh, we're going to have a battle royal there uh, as that uh, yes. governor uh, election unfolds. Well, yes, and the Senate election. So in 2020... Senate to Senate elections, yes. Yes, as we head into 2022, as CNN says, it all comes down to Georgia again. So, uh, well, as uh, other media kind of discovered Georgia last year, or maybe in 18 when they heard of Stacey Abrams, we've been, uh, and as you know, I've been reporting for uh, Flashpoints, but as part of my work with BBC, Al Jazeera, and Rolling Stone, um, giving special reports to you from Georgia for now eight years. Because eight years ago, Martin Luther King III said to me, you know, I'd like you to investigate, Ballast, is why isn't Georgia blue? I mean, if you take uh, you know, uh, people in the cities and young people and you take the African-American vote and the rising Hispanic-Asian vote, this should be a Democratic state. And which no one, you know, believed except for Stacey Abrams. We put her on the air for the first time eight years ago. But I think people have to understand a little history. We, we you know... Um, Georgia didn't turn into this. It's suddenly not like some new Jim Crow thing that fell from the sky. Let's go back to the beginning. Brian Kemp, who's the governor, he is the remaining uh, uh, descendant of the Habersham family. That name was changed and eliminated for good reason. They're the family that first brought slaves, enslaved people from Africa to Georgia. They got, it was actually prohibited to import slaves into Georgia. Remember, a lot of these colonies were uh, founded by dissent, religious dissenters who were abolitionists. Uh, but uh, his predecessors, Kemp's predecessors, uh, got a charter from the king to overcome the prohibition on the import of slaves. And then they got the monopoly from the king to do so. And that's where the Kemp family fortune comes from. Uh, and, and, you know, you say, well, why are you bringing that up? Is it his fault? Well, behind, it's the old rule, behind every great fortune is a great crime. Brian Kemp didn't just arrive from outer space and uh, become governor because of his great governing talents. This is a, his family really established the plantation system of Georgia, uh, first with rice and, um, and in fact, uh, their their other they then they married in with the Roswell Kings, and this is interesting. Brian Kemp is running is now going to be in a primary with a the candidate backed by Donald Trump, that is former Senate Senator David Perdue, who is a descendant of the Roswell Kings, which married with Kemp's predecessors. They joined up, uh, and they were in and the Kings were known as the uh, as some of the most brutal slave owners and slavers in Georgia, beatings, um, you know, continuing rapes, and, and they organized what is still remembered today by black people in Georgia as the Great Weeping, when 400 enslaved people were sold by uh, the Kemp and Purdue uh, ancestors in one day in Savannah. It was, it was like the, the, great, the largest auction of humans in Georgia history, and that was 
that's where that family fortune comes from. Now it's it's mutated. They don't have rice plantations anymore. Henry Ford bought out their plantations, uh, hoping to create a new a rubber industry down there, which failed. But um, that was converted then into Georgia pine land, where where Kemp clear cuts forest to sell the Georgia pines as toilet paper to Georgia Pacific, which is of course the Koch brothers company. So it's very important to know this history. Uh, so that, you know, understand these powers and, and the Kemp family especially was very big in the white citizens council resisting, uh, doing everything to resist the laws, the, uh, the, the right to vote of black people well into the 60s and then afterwards. So, you know, you have to understand where these fortunes and these powers come from. They didn't fall from the sky. Uh, race and class are part of it, too, because the plantation system, of course, brutalized the poor white shareholders and sharecroppers as well. It is a class system uh, that's imposed, and, it's, and they use race as the kind of cudgel to prevent organizing against the oligarchies, which still run that state. And stopping people from voting, this is an old story with variations on a theme. Uh, just for uh, uh, some facts on this, I think the Brennan Center has come out with a couple of studies that actually shows how bad it is in terms of the laws that are being created uh, and the number of states that are, are moving to limit and undermine the ability of people to vote. Well, I think two things there. Uh, the Brennan Center just issued a report just kind of tallying up the uh, the dangers here. We have 30, 19 states with 34 laws that will do two things. Uh, one, um, that will... Um, uh, do, you know, add the usual restrictions on voting from, you know, curtailing early voting to curtailing the type of ID, you know, that you need ID to vote and things like that. It has to be an active ID. For example, if your driver's license expired, well, that's still you on the photo. And if you haven't expired, uh, this has cut out a lot of older poor people who can't, who can't or won't renew their licenses. Infamously, some 90 year old nuns whose driver's licenses had expired. But they hadn't. But they lost their, their right to vote, which means that the right to vote is Tom, it was Tom Paine who says when they used to have requirements to have land to vote, uh, which continued in Georgia a long time, and the poll taxes in Georgia, of course. Um, he said, "Well, if a man's horse dies, he loses the right to vote. So it was the right to vote for the man or for the horse." And so you had the same in Georgia. But now, so understand the, the burden. Uh, I should also make a footnote on that, that one of the things that's happening in Georgia and other states that have been proposed, as the Brennan Center pointed out, is a series of new laws which will, which will uh, further empower legislatures to overturn the, the popular vote in their states. This is a very, you know, it's dismissed as nutty stuff. Don't dismiss it, because this lays the groundwork for an Article 12 overturn of the even the electoral popular vote in other words if if the democrats once again win georgia by a few thousand votes as they did in 2020 for the electoral college or in the senate races that the state legislature which in fact by the constitution has the power to determine the ultimate roster of electors will now be empowered it will be given further powers and in many states um 
outside parties will be allowed to challenge the electors. So look out. I mean, we could have, you know, people say it can't be done. I remember, you know, after all, people were laughing at the idea of Trump becoming president. Um, it's really serious stuff. And in Georgia, we have something else. One thing the Brennan Center missed, no matter how grim their report about the new laws, restrictions, and, and the, uh, the attempt to, to set up an Article 12 overthrow of the next presidential election, is that what isn't covered and barely noticed, and I'm glad we've been able to report, is this new kind of vigilante vote uh, laws that, that allow individuals to look for so-called fraudulent voters. This is very much like the Texas uh, abortion law, you know, which says you can go and sue and turn in neighbors if they get an abortion after 12 weeks or whatever they're saying, 10 weeks. Um, and... Um, in Georgia, leading the way, as it always does, you have the right of individuals to challenge, an unlimited right to challenge other people's votes. This is, and, and as we've reported, and no one else has reported, I've had no other radio show covered this outside Pacifica Network and, and Flashpoints, is the current outstanding challenge of 300,000 voters by the Texas group True the Vote, but organized by the Georgia GOP. So these are, this is not the state saying remove these voters because they're being watched, but it is individuals who have the right to block your ballot from being counted until you, for example, go into an office and prove who you are. And almost no one does that. So this could, it's much greater than, for example, Ossoff's margin of victory, Senator Ossoff, uh, who won over David Perdue. We don't know whether Perdue or Kemp almost certainly Kemp will be the nominee for governor, and they'll be running against Stacey Abrams. But I want to add one thing that has not been talked about, the increasing use of violence, state violence. In the case of, uh, of Brian Kemp, the minute he got into office as Secretary of State, he's now the governor. Secretary of State controls voting. Greg, Greg we're losing you. Could you yeah. adjust your... Your position okay. there, because we're losing let's, you. Let's see. Is this okay? Is this better? Okay. Yes. So Brian Kemp, when he became Secretary of State in 2013, that is in charge of elections. Uh, what he did was to, within weeks, he arrested 12 African American uh, African American officials who'd been gathering uh, registration and voter signatures for a school board election. And he arrested them under massive felony charges, including a Ph.D. school board member. But, of course, all African-American, he paraded them in handcuffs. They hadn't, you know, they kicked in the, the doors with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, you know, with automatic weapons and the whole thing into these families' homes. The school teachers, professors, et cetera, librarian. And if you go to gregpalace.com, you'll see this. There's a two-minute film, which is which is uh, discussing what we will be taking on in the next year for flashpoints and in film. And you will see one of the equipment, one of the people arrested by Brian Kemp, who says, you know, I just decided that the only way out of this was to commit suicide. And thank God she didn't finally, after five years of harassment, these people being financially and professionally ruined, all charges were dropped. It was ridiculous. There was no, there is zero evidence that they committed. They said, oh, they registered people illegally to vote. Of course, it never happened. They meant that they registered people of a non-white persuasion. 
Um, that's literally what happened, and and that wasn't, and that was his pattern. We also have him kicking in the door to ten thousand Koreans vote. After I did an article about their work, I guess I drew down fire on them, and and I feel terrible about this. But they were the Georgia Bureau of Investigation came in and, and arrested all these um, people trying to register. Uh, they were Korean Americans trying to register other Korean Americans to vote. It shut down that voter registration drive. Of course, there were no charges ever brought, but you can imagine people being arrested, like you know, elderly people sitting around, you know, doing voter registration. And then they did the same thing with another group uh, related to the New Georgia Project, Stacey Abrams' old group. Again, they arrested. They went in and seized students who were registering other students to vote. This endless threat of violence and we will you know using uh, you know these SWAT teams going in with automatic weapons of course TV cameras rolling they make sure that the TV cameras are there they parade people in front of cameras and of course all charges are dropped because of BS but this type of violence uh, has been very effective it definitely shut down part of the Asian American voter drive um, and I think it scares off it obviously scares off a lot of uh, voters and that's their point so this, but the Violence, the threat of, and then of course we have the famous um, picture of um, of uh, Representative uh, of the of now Congresswoman who is dragged away, kicking and screaming from Brian Kemp's office when she went to see the signing of the voting bill, even though she was elected state rep. Right. They grabbed her and they dragged her away, and you can see this at GregPalace.com. But this is a new huge problem. This violence from the state, and then, of course, a wink and a nod to the violence on the ground that we've been covering before. All right. Well, we're just about out of time, Greg Palace, but obviously this is incredibly important stuff. Uh, and uh, our attorney general there uh, seems to be asleep at the wheel, doesn't want to deal with some of these key issues having to do with uh, voter rights, enforcing voter rights by, for instance, holding some of the people who tried to overthrow the last election accountable. I guess uh, in the last 15 seconds, people will not be able to count on Mr. Raffensperger, who is uh, considered a hero by some in the corporate media. Yes, I know. MSDNC, as I call it, praised this guy because he got in a fight with Trump over failing to find him another 12,000 votes. But you have to understand, he already illegally knocked off 300,000 voters. We got half of those back on through federal court action. I was working with Black Voters Matter Fund and, the, uh, um, and, and of course, the NAACP and uh, Rainbow Push. But, um, you know, the idea that, the, that this wonderful uh, Secretary of State is going to help, he's been part of the gang um, claiming falsely his big lie, he said that there were a thousand people voting twice in Georgia. But then when I, I asked him to name one, who is this guy? Who is this double voter? Name me one. He couldn't name one. Not couldn't one. name one. We're, we're out of time, Greg Palace. GregPalace.com, as always, extraordinarily important information. You can go to GregPalace.com. A best-selling reporter, filmmaker, uh, vote protector extraordinaire. That's it for us. Thank you, Greg. Come back soon. We need you.